Here we go. Hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and you are listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk to you about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is detective noirs and horror, and we are joined by guest John Baltisberger from Madness Heart Press and Madness Heart Games. As a warning, this is a very, 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 very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to dodge spoilers for any of today's topics, including uh, Baltisberger's series, Treef Magic and the Book of Zev, the Keanu's Re- Keanu Reeves movie, Constantine, or the video game Gabriel Knight, then turn back now. But with all of that said and out of the way, here we go. Let's get spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. John, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Howdy. I am I am doing. I am living through my own uh fun little version of body horror here in <laughs> Austin. So, you know, it's living the dream. I'll buy the nightmare, but you know, it's a dream nonetheless, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh nightmares, dreams. There's a thin line. Yeah, I know you you had a dentist appointment earlier today and like dental things give me the give me the creeps (laughs) i cracked i cracked a wisdom tooth just the other day and um and i was like okay well i need to go to the dentist spoiler alert i haven't been to a dentist in over 20 years so uh it was a thing it was a like there were like the dentist was very impressed with the state of my grill (laughs) uh considering but it's still like, okay, well, we need to get rid of all four of your wisdom teeth. You have one like thing that will eventually be a cavity, so we should probably fill that. Uh, but also let's get let's do like a super deep cleaning, get you a night like it was a whole laundry list of things. It was like this, this is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. <laughs> I have a I have a big tooth thing. Like I don't like people messing with my teeth. I don't like the idea like I just I'm not a mouth person. So yeah, I avoid the dentist at all costs. So I'll, I'll be honest, the same tra- trajectory. One of the biggest reasons I haven't gotten into a shit ton of fights in my life is because I don't want to lose a tooth and look like a <laughs> like a hill like a like a Appalachian hillbilly. So I guess you didn't play hockey either then. I uh, yeah no I I tried <laughs> to join the Austin Texas Hockey League, but for some reason I couldn't find sign up sheets. <laughs> that. That makes a little bit of sense. I didn't know you were based in Austin. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Born and raised here in uh, in the parched, baked hellscape that is Texas. <laughs> I feel that. My sister just moved out there, so I've been getting reports back from her about uh, just all of the... Uh all of the weather shenanigans we're georgia based so it's like we're Uh, we're used to the heat too but it's a humid heat here and i guess it just hits different over there it's it so what's funny is texas is such a massive state that whatever climate you have we also have at least in one part like here in austin it's pretty dry it's pretty you know it's not that humid but if you go to houston you can swim through the city gross and (laughs) it's not great it's it's especially bad if you're trying to sell books 
Yeah, yeah. No, I imagine nobody wants a dripping book. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, some people, but I don't want, I don't talk about them. <laughs> keep, uh, keep Austin weird though, right? Uh, man, I books. look, if you want, if you want to have this, if you want to be this podcast to be nothing but me bitching about my home city, we can do that, <laughs> but it's not going to be great for your listeners. So let's just, let's just say that, uh, that the only, the only thing I am staying in Austin for is my family and the horror community here. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I saw, I saw when you logged on this, this is a no video podcast yet, unfortunately, but you're wearing a, a ghoulish shirt right now, I think. I am. Yeah. yeah. Max is, uh, <laughs> Max is a, uh, a good, fr- I actually, I got a package in the mail from Max today, uh, of a game that we had discussed, uh, but yeah, Max. Uh, Max is about an hour away from me. Andrew Hilbert, who is one of the Ghoulish authors, is uh, about a two-minute walk from me. Uh, Lucas Mangum lives here. Uh, Ryan Bradley lives here. Uh, Rath James White, uh, Gabino Iglesias. Like, there's a really, there's a really solid um, horror community here in Austin, Central Texas. So, it, like, that is. I like straight up one of the only things keeping me here. I love that. I'm I'm Atlanta based, so I know it's me, Brianna Morgan. That might be the entire list. <laughs> I'm sure there's more. I'm sure there's more. You just I'm sure there like, they're are, not easy to I find know. if you don't like if you're not in it. You know what? Like yeah. if you're not in um, the conventions there, like that's the only way you find out who's in your city is the local conventions. Yeah, and that's a struggle in Atlanta. Like the one big horror convention we have is Walking Dead themed. Uh, yeah, that's not really uh, not really the place that the horror authors are going to probably flock to. Right. I mean, they might attend, but you won't know because they're not, you know, hawking their books. Yeah. We've also got, there's this really big Comic Con kind of convention called Dragon Con that this year started a horror track. Like just kind of finding all the horror things that are already happening within Dragon Con, I guess, and like yeah, that a little bit. But Dra- uh, Comic Cons that are hard. Comic Cons yeah. are such a mixed bag for us horror folk. Um, but there's a you know I don't like we're not we're not diving into the topic yet. But I'll tell you that um, one of the things you have to look out for when you're looking at cons is if there's celebrities or if it's a themed con, oftentimes what people want is nostalgia based. Like they don't want new horror novels. They want Jason Voorhees coasters. Yeah. Um, and nothing wrong. Like there's nothing wrong with being a fan of those series and that, that stuff. It's just, they're not the ones buying my books. Most usually. Yeah. I could see that. That makes sense. Like that's that's why The Walking Dead has a convention right now, not because the new stuff is any good, but just because like the first yeah. two seasons were truly amazing. And, I mean, you, know, you might be at, like if I was doing Walking Dead, I would bring zombie books. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you just have to be smart about conventions like that. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the dive into the topic. We are talking today about detective noir in horror, which. Um, I'm going to be very upfront with everybody about this is not my usual bag of tricks. This is not a corner of the horror genre that I typically play around in a lot. So, John, you're really going to be our like our guide into the into the trope today. 
Okay. Um, so first of all, let's just lay this out there. What are we talking about when we say detective noir? What do you think the rules of this genre are? <laughs> How does it play with horror? How doesn't it play with horror? What sure. What are we getting into here? So a while back, uh, I think they talk about this a little bit in Grady Hendrix's Paperbacks from Hell. Uh, horror books got rebranded as thrillers. It was seen seen as less distasteful. And specifically, it was like mystery thriller. So there's two parts to this, right? Um, there's the mystery of a detective story, but noir brings a very specific image to mind. You know, it's the the hard-bitten, usually like New York or L.A. detective. I knew she was trouble from the minute she walked in. Legs for <laughs> days. So many legs. She was a spider. Um, you know, that kind of... That kind of uh, nihilistic bent. As soon as I say noir detective, if you're not thinking like Maltese Falcon, or at least one of the like Looney Tunes inspired versions of Maltese Falcon, then like I like I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Those that's like the gold standard, right? But when we when we butt this stuff up against what we know as horror, we usually go two ways with it. It's either why they're looking at a cop or detective alone right alone alone gun hunting down like a serial killer or some kind of like supernatural serial killer that tends to be the the way of things it's very rarely the more um like crime uh conspiracy that that i really think of when i think of detective noir but i think it's also a catch-all so for instance a lot of people know me from the, you know, Splatterpunk Awards or the Killer Con, uh, the Splatterpunk scene. I call myself, or I call what I write, Splatter Pulp, um, because pulp fiction, pulp fantasy, uh, pulp literature of the 1930s especially is a big influence for me. And it was at this time that you saw authors like uh, Robert Howard is one of my favorite examples. You know, he's the guy who created Conan. And when you think of Conan, a lot of people think of like the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, but like Conan was almost more of a the literary Tarzan than the uh, cinematic Conan, a very intelligent, although not really educated figure. And Robert Howard also like would write these eldritch horror stories into the Conan uh, stories, but he would also write stories about boxers and stories about detectives. And they would deal with spooky shit. Um, and so what I write, what I really, what I really do is I write pulp, right? And uh, part of what defines pulp, in my opinion, is a joy, um, a, <laughs> a desire to just write stories that are fun and cool, um, that, you know, sometimes they have a lot of deep substance, but they can be enjoyed on the service level. You can go into the airport, read a pulp book while you wait for your plane or on the plane, and then you can, uh, in the Japanese way, sell it back to the bookstore and pick up a new pulp novel for your next trip. Um, so specifically with Detective, you know, uh, if you're in the Books of Horror Facebook group, you'll see they, you know, every year they pass around this checklist of books to read. And instead of specific book titles, it will be um, categories. 
And one of the categories is paranormal detective. And that's really where I live as a spider pulp author. And that's kind of where we are today. That's what kind of all, all the things we are talking about today involve uh, detect or not necessarily detectives, but people, mysteries, and the supernatural. Did I answer anything you asked or did I just like bloviate yes. for five no, no, no. minutes? That, no, that was perfect. You, you hit every angle of detective noir horror in one response. And that's really impressive because in my mind, those are three very distinct things. And I was really struggling myself to find the connective tissue between the three. And you just kind of like wove them all together for us perfectly. So that nailed it. Perfect. I think a little bit of the reason that I've always been shy from this corner of the horror universe is because I've never really seen it done well before trying to marry the ideas of a detective novel, movie, work, whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, a, a detective story where the person that we're following is trying to unravel what's going on here. I I always struggle trying to process that angle of things with the horror angle of things where in a good horror movie and a good horror story, they keep the monster shrouded in mystery until the end. They keep the horror shrouded in mystery until the end. The the One of the tried and true rules of horror is the more times you see the bad thing, the less scary it gets. So you don't sure. you never really want to show the bad thing. So if you've got a protagonist whose entire objective is show the bad thing, but you've got a genre whose entire objective is don't show the bad thing. Like that always gets a little bit confusing to me in my mind. So let me, let me go ahead and just like blow your mind open here. Let's do it. A good horror film, alien, (laughs) alien, right? Like, yeah. uh, Alien. I, if anyone were to tell me that alien is not a masterwork of horror, I'd probably hit them. Uh, (laughs) Again, I won't protect my teeth. So like in my mind, I would hit them. Right. Like, yeah, and you see it like you don't see it till the very end. It's just glimpses, uh, undeniably horror. However, however, switch the perspective from third person omnipresent, right? Switch mm-hmm. it to like first person Ridley. Uh, sorry, Ridley Ripley. And suddenly you're not in a horror movie. You're in a space detective movie. Something is happening, crewmates are disappearing, and you're trying to figure out what? What are the clues? Okay, part of the floor. Like, a detective story, they're the same thing. Uh, If done right in horror and in detective stories, no one should be able to figure out what's happening until the big reveal at the end. And then, if you've done your job well, you look back and you see all the things leading up to that big reveal. So... Like, I, I saw those in the notes, and I was like, man, you're reading some really shitty detective stuff <laughs> if, if like, every other page the detective's like, aha, and now this is apparent. Like, whether you love or hate uh, the, like, torture porn of Saul, one of the oh. coolest moments of Saul is that last, of the original movie, right, is the last moment when it shows all the connecting puzzle pieces that led to that final reveal. Yep. And we're hitting on the Holy Grail here. Saw is Saw is my jam. I, yeah, I Love really enjoyed movie. it. I really uh, another. OK, so take Saul, right? Undeniably a horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. 
Now, have you ever seen the show Leverage? I have not. Okay. Leverage is a show about a group of thieves and criminals who pull off these elaborate heists to blackmail, like, corrupt corporate people into, like, giving money back to the poor. But it's the exact same setup where they do this elaborate thing, and in the last three minutes, they show all the little steps and all the connective tissue of the episode that led to them succeeding. Again, exact, exact same premise and makeup of uh, Saul. And again, there's a new, uh, I want to say it's Netflix, but I could be wrong. Uh, there's a new Lupin, uh, Lupin TV show, the, the famous thief. Um, yes, Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. And they do the same thing where it shows him going about his day. And then in the last like three minutes, they show how it came together. And all of the, those are all detective stories. So good horror and good detective stories should be indistinguishable until you see if it's a criminal or a monster at the end. Okay. I'm out of breath. That was no. I'm passionate. (laughs) Everybody listening. This is like my dream for what guests can do on this show is like come in here and like just straight up educate me. This is great. I think this also feeds really well into the first like primary topic we were planning to talk about uh, tonight with Constantine. Yes. Um, the Keanu Reeves, the original Keanu Reeves movie. This is one of my biggest issues with this movie is beyond just the pacing problems. I feel like the mystery elements of it don't work very well. So, the whole time you might not know exactly what's going on with the twins. You might not know exactly what's going on. Or I forget if they're twins or not, but the, the main girl and her sister, at least. You might not I know. Think exactly they're, I think they're twins. Okay. All right. That makes me feel smarter then. Uh, you, you don't know exactly what's going on with the twins, but you get the whole heaven and hell thing. You get the angels. You get that there are demons coming up and fighting things. And just a lot of the monologuing and a lot of the explaining is stuff that if you've ever seen a horror movie before, or if you've ever seen a detective movie before, or if you have any concept of what a church is, you know this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why are we having this explained to us? Right I have now? so many thoughts on this. All right, um, let's go. So first of all, I enjoy the movie. Um, I, let me get that out of the way before I start bashing at it. <laughs> um, I really like John Constantine as a character. Uh, I have a bunch of the comics. The first thing you have to remember is Constantine. Uh, first of all, should have been called Hellblazer because uh, that's the name of the comic. Um it's a comic book movie. First and foremost, they are trying to appeal and um, uh, draw in the comic book audience. I can't remember when Constantine came out. It feels like it was early 2000s. I can look this up while you're getting into your point. But um, so the, there were certain beats that this is before the MCU. Sadly, holy shit, I would love to see Constantine as a mainstay in the MCU. Oh, sorry. DC. DCU. Yeah. Uh, 2005. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Early 2000. Um, you know, Constantine is a very specific character. Did you watch the Constantine cartoon? Or not the live action one? Sorry. I Was that the one that was on the CW? 
Yeah. Yes, I watched the first season of that, and it, for my money, that was so much better than it the was. Keanu it was, Reeves and movie. it was a bet. Look, uh, I am a fan of Keanu Reeves as a person, and a fan of Keanu Reeves in certain roles, but. John Constantine is unapologetically British and should remain so. Um, <laughs> uh, that said, that said, part of the issue was they had to play within rules uh, that would make they thought would make the fans happy, um, which led to a really stale, stale, uh, pardon me, uh, movie because in general. Hollywood doesn't trust the audience to know it's left from its right. Um, and so they made a film that would uh, be more action-packed than it would be detective, right? Mm -hmm. And they made a film that was going to be more um, digestible to a mainstream American audience. Uh, whereas on the TV show, you know, the CW had been running Supernatural for 50 years or whatever it ran for um they understood like okay the audience loves uh esoteric uh myths from other cultures so let's play in that space and that's why the tv show one of the many reasons the tv show was so much more successful is because they didn't allow themselves to be like hobnobbled is that i'm gonna keep it hobnobbled <laughs> making it a word yeah hobnobbled by the um you know, fearing that the audience won't get it if they were too cerebral or whatever. Um, and so I, that, and, that, and like, that's how it is. It, it was, it was specifically written for American audiences and Hollywood and trust Americans could handle anything other than a very pure Christian uh, uh, fiction essentially that you know and as a jewish author who writes jewish shit for jewish guys and girls and non-binary uh it's really frustrating because that is one of the main things that hobbles me is people's like expectation that like okay if you're writing this then it's going to be this and they're going to be weak against the crawl like the stereotypes found in supernatural mystic mysticism really hobble you when dealing with um critics audiences love the shit they love it when it's not um mainstream christian but the people who are risking their money are very nervous to spend it if they don't feel like everyone will understand what's happening so that is in a nutshell, that's why every single beat of the Constantine movie, you're like, yep, and now this is going to happen. And now this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And now and now this this very familiar angel is going to happen. And now it's going to be Satan. And now it's going to, like, again, it's just, they wanted everyone in the audience to feel like they knew what was going on because unless you're Darren Aronofsky, making your audience feel stupid is not generally uh, <laughs> the way to make money. Um, so with all of that said, you gave us a really good segue into your book, uh, Treef Magic. And Traif. Your, Traif. Traif Magic. Uh, and How dare series. you not speak fluent Hebrew? I do not. But before we before we transition over to that, any hope for the Constantine sequel that they just announced? Oh, sure. Um, problems. Here's the thing. Like, 
<laughs> the Constantine sequel is going to be fun. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to sit in. The, I, I'm probably going to sit on my ass at home uh, and watch mm-hmm. it on HBO Plus with a beer in my hand. But I'm going to enjoy it. It's going to be a fun time. Uh, will it be Hellblazer? No, probably not. Uh, but I'm okay with like. Um, I told someone recently that you know after I watched the trailer for Wakanda Forever. And it looks really cool. And I was like, I'm excited about this. And I realized it was the first time in a few years I'd been excited about a Marvel movie. Uh, that said, I've watched all the Marvel movies and I enjoyed them. Like, I don't need something to be true to its source material. And I don't need something to be, I don't need something to be like artistically good for it to be like fun. I hope it is. I hope it's all those things. But like, at the end of the day, just give me a cool movie. Yeah. I'm down for that. I I also think they got a lot of the monologuing out of their system, hopefully. Like, if you're making a sequel, you assume people have seen the first one. You assume you don't have to explain all of that. See, the, the, those, mon- okay. those monologues are part and parcel for noir detective stories. That's part of the reason they're there. And okay. I mentioned at the top of the episode with the, I knew she was trouble from the minute she walked in sort of thing. Like, that's... That's just noir detectives. They're built on those first-person gritty monologues. So maybe they won't have them, but like I would not go into it expecting them to not have monologues. Okay, so that's I'm sorry to say. Is. I just I just need to process and accept and, and, and go go to some therapy. <laughs> see 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 how Shakespeare hurt you, and <laughs> we'll go from there. Okay, I, I was intending to, to segue to the book already, but this could be a good conversation about monologues. I don't think I have an inherent built-in bias against monologues because I think they can be done really well. So key example being any Mike Flanagan series is so monologue heavy, but they draw you in and the acting is great. And they they have these big grand points that they're building up to. And even, uh, have you seen... The Midnight Club yet? I don't think I have. Okay. Brand new Mike Flanagan show that he put out. Uh, the basic premise is that these kids in a uh, cancer hospice home are telling each other scary stories to gain some ownership over the concept of death. My wife and I are like five episodes in, and there's an episode four where one of the characters stands up and she starts telling. At, a detective noir kind of a story mm-hmm. and they they go with the sepia tone and they go with all of the like funny old-timey speak and like all the actors really lean into it and even that's fun but when keanu reeves does it well keanu reeves has certain strengths me. as an actor and mo- like monologue ain't it yeah again i i i, I keanu reeves is an amazing human being but like inflection not his strong point you know what i mean like right. you have to you have to have more you have to have more personality than that <laughs> on screen if you're going to make the monologue thing work is is i guess what i'm trying to say yeah. okay so maybe we constantine too we still have the monologues maybe you know i think an older uh keanu is keanu is going to give better monologues he, you know, because uh, John Wick is a, not that far off from Constantine as far as, like, personality. Right. So I think he has more practice of being that, like, 
exhausted badass uh, yeah. that Constantine, I think, should kind of uh, portray. So I, I high hopes, you know, high hopes. Yeah. All right. So fingers crossed. Here's hoping that maybe the writing meets Keanu where he is a little bit more or something. I don't know. But help me with the pronunciation again here. I don't want to butcher this Trafe. twice in one episode. Trafe, Trafe magic. magic. Okay. So your book, uh, Trafe Magic, is the first in the Book of Zev series. Correct. Um, and haha, I'm one for two. The big cool thing that caught me off guard here is the Jewish demon hunter, Jewish exorcist angle. Um, yeah. You, you already started talking about this a little bit about, about that character and this world and kind of this angle on things, but just sure. where did this character come from? What inspired you to start writing this series in particular? Why this angle? Because we are so used to every single exorcist movie and film and thing being catholic yeah just exhausting so this was you a don't know the half of air. it <laughs> so okay this there's there's a few points to this few parts to this uh this question uh first and foremost what made me write this first um yeah. i was reading another urban fantasy series um i can't think of the author's name uh it's the iron druid series and um it blows yeah like i'm not hey if you're a fan of his series i'm sorry get better taste uh (laughs) uh so and look i say that because halfway through or near i can't remember in what book it happens he decides to introduce like a catholic and a jewish like magician that are like going against him because the Abrahamic magicians are against the Celtic magicians for some reason, Uh, which like, if you know anything about history, you know, the Catholics don't really like Jewish mystics all that much. They've done a lot of killing of them over the years. So like that red flag one, Uh, red flag two, his decision on like, how do I portray Jewish mystics was, oh, I know, I'll make their beards like grow and do weird stuff because Jews have those big beards. Uh, so it was really anti-Semitic, really gross and really infuriated me. And so I said, you know, I, I, the Dresden series, which is super popular has kind of lost me uh, because of an issue I have with a lot of urban fantasy, which is uh, ever growing uh, stakes that become too big in my opinion. um and this series has obviously lost me because of its anti-semitism so you know i'm a writer why don't i write why don't i write something like this except make it jewish because i'm not so like there's been exorcisms in every culture there's exorcisms in buddhism in shintoism there's there's exorcisms in almost every single faith on the world and um judaism is no uh different there's lots of jewish tradition in it and so i want i i first i was just going to make it that like a a jewish exorcist doing stuff with ghosts and it was going to be urban fantasy yada 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 and i wrote a story called the dybbuk goes down to memphis which was the first instance i used zev 
and at the end of that story, I left it kind of open-ended and I was like, oh, I probably get back to that. I should probably have something like grow from this. And I slowly did, but it really came from a place of like reading that in a super popular series, opened my eyes to the like staggering ignorance to Jewish culture and people that is rampant in the mainstream. 99% of people out there think that Judaism is pre-Christianity. It's Christianity beta. But the truth is like, and if I, when I say this, people are like, oh, well, you know, you have the same book. Like, no, we don't. The, the Christian Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, are very different books. They're different translations. They're different orders. The, the message is different. Everything about the two things is different. And so, like, we're not the same faith. We're not the same culture. We're not the same history. And it's, it's really frustrating, uh, maddening, if you can't tell from my, my tone, that that is the perception. So um, a lot of what I do as a writer is fight against that perception. Um, there was a movie a while back called The Possession. It started Dybbuk Box and a rabbi doing a exorcism. Um, the Dybbuk Box is not a part of Jewish folklore. It popped up on an internet meme, I believe, at some point, or a, a eBay thing, and, and it kind of grew, and it's like become assumed to be a part of actual Jewish folklore. And the all, everything about the exorcism in the movie was a Catholic exorcism, but in Hebrew. Like, The Possession is billed as a Jewish horror movie, but it's a Catholic horror movie that someone threw a, a yarmulke on. That's just been skinned the, the exactly. wrong way. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's a Catholic Ed Gein wearing the face mask of Judaism. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's the greatest visual. <laughs> <laughs> I need to remind everyone that I am actually a horror author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, slip that little plug in here. <laughs> so that's, that's how it got started. Yeah. It really, I say this a lot. I want to show people how fucking cool Jewish culture and folklore is. And that was one of my big takeaways while I was reading it was the the book series is really cool. So if you are listening to this and you haven't picked up the book yet, um, imagine like the best episode of Supernatural you can you can imagine, I guess. And then also add in some enlightenment about Jewish culture, um, all of that, too. Like it's it. Uh, I feel like we we've talked for a hot minute here about the the differences between Judaism and Catholicism and how how the book is trying to address those and it certainly does but it's a really fun fucking book also. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, I didn't realize what I was writing when I wrote it. I didn't realize like when I was writing I was just writing urban fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Um I didn't realize until like halfway through book three uh that was like wait a second this is detective pulp (laughs) Uh, so (laughs) here we are as i was reading the book i was trying to figure out why like specifically it was working so much better than constantine in my mind because a lot of the same elements are there it's the same like sort of genre of horror it is detective noir you've got this guy investigating um, why this Dybbuk came up in Memphis and uh, everything else that's going on, why this 
reanimated corpse is attacking him in the morgue, like all this other yeah. fun stuff. Um, but throughout it all, there's still these, I hate to call them info dumps because that paints them in a very bad light, but there are still these long monologues. Yeah, there's definitely like, on, here's the info, but it man, works better. <laughs> I got a, I got a comment, I got a comment at one point, a review where someone was like, there's not enough, uh, there's not enough like di- like internal dialogue. And it's like, did you miss the like entire chapters that were just Zev in his car, like talking about stuff to himself? Like, yeah. But um, you know, I like <laughs> when you boil it down, like those chapters are essentially theological essays with a character voice. Um and I'm glad I'm glad you like them because, you know, it's every author has different strengths. And obviously I'm extremely passionate about Jewish mysticism and Jewish occultism. And so hopefully that comes through and helps keep that pace going, helps drive the energy of the character and the words forward. You know, the thing like I mentioned in in, in Constantine, like the writers, the, whoever screen wrote that, probably was doing it for a paycheck. They had been handed a stack of Hellblazer comics and said, make this a movie. And then I don't know if Keanu was a big fan of the character at the time or if he was familiar with the character at the time, but he was probably doing it for a paycheck too. Um, and again, like he said, like I'd love to play this character again, so I'm hoping that he's going to bring a lot more passion and interest to the role, and it's going to be rad. But, you know, my passion for this stuff definitely, uh, I would hope, comes through in my writing. You know, I have, I said this on Twitter earlier today, actually. My goal as a writer is to never give the reader a chance to get bored. And I like to think I'm pretty okay at it. Um, People don't, a lot of people don't like my books because they want them to be longer or go more in depth. But for me, the most important thing is for someone to never, like, no one to, like, sigh and be like, fuck, I'm still reading this chapter? God damn. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, you win some, you lose some. And for, you know, for Zev, when I'm writing a monologue about Judaism uh, or, or you know, monsters or uh, morals or whatever, I if I start to get bored of writing it, I stop writing it. Because then, like, if I'm getting bored, the reader will get bored. And so that's my rule. Like, if I am trying to get through a scene, then if I'm trying to get through writing a scene, just imagine how laborious it's going to be for the reader. So that was that was going to be my question. I don't think I've ever actually said this out loud, but um, like, what what are your rules for keeping those monologues like included so that you are on genre, but also as snappy as you did? And I, I think you just answered the question for me. So perfect. <laughs> Rad. Another thing that I think is really interesting to try to wrap my head around with you as a creative, especially, is you are not just involved in the novel side of things. Um, you are also involved in Madness Heart Games. Yeah, I don't think we actually mentioned this. We've been talking about myself as a a writer, but I'm the uh, publishing editor of Madness Heart Press. Um, so I manage all like all of the publishing that Madness Heart Press and Madness Heart Games do. Uh, at the end of this year, we will have, I want to say, 
somewhere around 80 books published in the last four years, um, which is way too many. Um, <laughs> that's a big number. That is too big. Um, that said, um, yes, Madness Heart Games, that is our newest imprint. And uh, one of the more, like for me personally, maybe one of the more exciting ones. So what what does that experience crafting stories for game mechanics does that change your outlook on these novels as you're writing them does that change anything about your process as an author or in your head are those two separate skill sets sure so it's funny i'm actually going to be on a panel in a couple of weeks called storytelling and world building through charts and graphs because that's like a real thing is like you have to use micro you know a sentence a couple of words to tell entire stories and how do you do that does it change my perspective from a like novel writing perspective i gotta say honestly no the the act of writing a novel and the act of writing a um a story are so completely different they're not I, I hesitate to say, I mean, obviously they're related, right? But it's like barely. Mm-hmm. They're um, so distinct, not only in like process, but in purpose. You know, when I'm writing a novel, I'm telling a story from beginning to end. I control every aspect of that novel from, you know, the way you start reading it to the way you end reading. I control the beats, I control the timing, I control the pace. I control everything about it. When you're making a game, <laughs> you suggest a world, you suggest events, and then you're like you're done. Everything that happens after that is up to other people, and that's a very different challenge. Yeah. Um I I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast ever before, actually. So this will be fun. I play Dungeons and Dragons with a group of old friends, and I am the 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 go to DM uh, for a lot of our campaigns now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just getting the getting the dungeon masters guides and reading through them and being like, here's the basic setup. Your party might do this, 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 this. Those are lies. Those are all lies. Your party will never do any of the things. Party will never do anything but hurt you. Right. So it's just crazy. Like you go from, like you were saying, the novel where you have total control over everything to a game where you have no control over anything. Yeah. And you still got to tell stories through both of those mediums. One thing I'd like to point out uh, is, um, oh, what's the name of that? What is that? Damn it. Um, uh, Post-Apocalypse, Bethesda. Fallout. Fallout, thank you. Fallout 3 and 4 do a lot of environmental storytelling. And that is, uh, as a game designer, that is kind of my go-to thing to lean into. Um, I set up a world, I set up a place, what happens in that place is not my problem, that is up to the (laughs) players and the GM to figure out, thank you, I'm done, give me five monies, (laughs) all I got most of the time. Yeah, they can, they can screw around as much as they want in the landscape, but if you've put 
big hulking thing in the middle of that landscape they're going to end up at it and they're going to see it and whatever else so yeah yeah, yeah. You, okay. you set up what what you do is you set up a bunch of dominoes so that when the players in, inevitably bump into one things begin to fall and uh they fall in the direction you want them to but game design is an entirely different beast uh and a entirely different type of storytelling I love it, but it's it's very different. So does any of that translate into electronic game design, such as, final topic, Gabriel Knight? So I don't know that Gabriel Knight was written or had writers, but um, <laughs> for video games, yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so I could go two ways with this right now. Um, let's lean into that comment for a second. <laughs> Other than Gabriel Knight, what are some games you can think of that do a good job of using the environment for storytelling other than Fallout, like you already mentioned? Sure, sure. Um, if, we, if we're giving players this big sandbox, like what are some other successful examples of world building games? And why do you think those... You know, Silent Hill. Uh, yes! Silent Hill 1 through 4. Uh, and I say 1 through 4 because I haven't played much of much Silent Hill after those games. Um, they did a great job. They did a fantastic job of setting up a world of thing. Like if you want to, you can just play through them and just solve puzzles and run around, but it's just as easy to like get lost walking around Silent Hill and discovering all the little details. Cause they put a shit ton of details into those games. Uh, beyond Silent Hill, um, going back to like Detective Noir specifically, there's a game called Murdered Soul Suspect, which I kind of wish I had suggested f instead, and I was thinking about it, then I decided not to. Uh, Murdered Soul Suspect is a really cool um, kind of like paranormal detective horror stealth game. You the It opens with you getting shot and dying outside of a building, and then you have to wonder the world as a ghost and figure out who killed you uh, while these like hungry geist hunt you down. Cool. Okay. Yeah, like that's super I mean, cool. That's a good concept. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, Gabriel Knight, you know, it's it's a game. Um, <laughs> so I'm giving it a lot of shit right now. The thing is, is it's a product of its time. It's a quick, it's a uh, point and click adventure from oh god 25 years ago yep uh so late 1998 um and it has it has like all of the problems you would expect to encounter from a 90s game uh blatant and gross sexism um some pretty weird racism it just has it all so um that's what you're getting into if you if you play that game um but at the same time like it's like you can't argue that's not a detective game right like it's that's what it is yeah so the the basic premise of the game is that gabriel knight is this detective down in new orleans uh, not a detective he's an author or that's right he is an author uh investigating a voodoo ritual uh, for the purposes of the book that he is writing. 
Um, and he stumbles into this mystery of some murder that has occurred with very similar characteristics to the voodoo ritual that he has been investigating. And he gets sucked into it with all of the other detectives and everybody else and the cops running around. Yeah. Um, it felt very Call of Cthulhu to me. Um, yeah. Lots of Man, John, I could, I could say some hot stuff. takes on, on Cthulhu, but... Um... You know the thing is the thing is is that what it felt like to me was that uh someone read someone read a lot of Stephen King and thought I could probably do that but I'm a huge fan of Lovecraft so I'm going to put some of that in there okay um and they probably shouldn't have done either of those things um <laughs> so it, it it's paying it's playing it's paying part of me homage uh to the genre well i think you know back in 1998 or 97 or whenever it came out um video games were not you know the only video games that were telling stories were jrpgs um most of the stories were not being built to the level they are today. Today, you know, you have games like Shadow of the Colossus that are are really doing so much. Um, but then I think there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of just like, okay, we're making a game. So it has to, there are certain rules when you're making games, right? Um, or that that's what used to be the the standard. There are certain rules you have to follow when you're making games. And uh, in the 90s, even the late 90s, a lot of those roles involved like, well, only prepubescent boys are playing video games. So ramp up the sex. And I think that affects the quality. Um, when, you're writing, when you're writing for a specific audience instead of writing for yourself, you, you can run into some pretty gross problems. It's also a time period where, like you were saying, there's not a lot of storyline, so they're just mainly leaning into gameplay more than yeah. anything else. And if there happens to be a story, then cool, so be it. Um, the the gameplay for this one is a point and click adventure, which yeah. I have not had much experience with in my huh. life. Just totally honestly, there were. There were a couple of games growing up, like first grade adventures, second grade adventure, third grade adventures, like whatever else. But uh, don't lie, you were playing Leisure Suit Larry. <laughs> no, but I do know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, that's a, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, for me, like by the time I was playing video games, like there was a controller in my hand, so it was like it, it was running and jumping stuff. Right, and right, 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 right. Click right. aspect of it was a little bit lost. Um, do you feel like the point and click adventure is well suited to detective noir or uh, no? And I'll tell you, look, I'll tell you why there's plenty of, there's plenty of games now that are proving that at the end of the day, you don't have to, um, you don't have to make detective work boring, um, which um hopefully doesn't make too many people too angry but like you can have fun with it it's fine no one's gonna get mad at you for having fun um what's your best example of that 
What's your best uh, example of a fun detective game at this point? Sure. How about Batman? Um, uh, the Arkham Knight series. Yeah, the first one especially. That was so uh, all, like yeah, Arkham. Movies. I was thinking Arkham Knight. Um, as because the Arkham Knight specifically, I'm thinking of because you know they actually have like scenes where you come across a crime and you have to do detective work to find it, uh, to figure it out. Um. There's also you mentioned Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I don't know if you're you're talking about the original Call of Cthulhu game, um, but there's also a new one. I haven't played it yet. It's sitting on my shelf. I'll play it. There's also a game called Sinking City, yes. uh, which is very obviously a, a Lovecraft game, um, and it has a lot more action and it has like Detecto Vision, uh, where like clues are highlighted in yellow and it allows you to do um various um like reenactments and uh cyberpunk cyberpunk 2077 also has was it 2077 uh anyway also has like scenes where you like jack into people's vision and you can like replay what happened and figure out like okay here's here's where the evidence i need is um so like it can be done fun without it being point and click and i think that'll maybe make some people angry who like point and click but (laughs) um it's i feel like point and click is more a man i feel like point and click is more a relic of nostalgia than good gameplay it was it was based on what our technology was capable of at the time and that um it's not my favorite i don't i am not a fan of point and click adventures okay fair enough um so i want to i want to kind of spin this off now into now that we've talked about a movie and we've talked about a book and we've talked about a video game i want it on the record i think this is the first episode that we've ever run the entire gambit we've actually hit all three mediums i just want to mention that uh hellblazer is also a comic book so and a comic we've got four mediums yeah (laughs) um out of all of our different mediums and all of their like strengths and weaknesses with tackling different tropes the the big question for the show which one of them do you think is best suited to making a good fun detective noir out of and so first first and foremost buy my books um yes <laughs> like, like i don't know i don't know how to answer that question and not also sell my books um but that said you don't like, have to do it <laughs> <laughs> like I, uh you know if you don't like noir if you don't like good noir movies uh let me recommend brick for instance um, if you do, if you watch the movie Brick and you don't love it, you're not going to like Detective Noir. Like Detective Noir was built around movies, in my opinion. Um, it was uh, to be like to be fair, it was probably written around. Um, it was probably written around radio, uh, to be completely frank. But uh, I think movies are are really uh the uh the most comfortable home of detective noir uh 
So if you're listening to this and you're and you make movies, you know, maybe option one of my books. There we go. Yeah. Nailed it. But we've got good source material and then you get to process it in a medium that's good for Detective Noir too. Like yeah. that sounds like a winning combination. Yes. Um, yeah, I think I would I would kind of lean the same way towards either books or movies. I feel like it, this is the second detective e video game that I've tried to grapple with where where the detective angle of it is the primary angle. So I played Call of Cthulhu for our episode with Derek Hutchins last season. Mm-hmm. Uh the the 2016 one, the newer one. Okay. And it just felt like a walking simulator to me and not in a good sure. way. And the the detective e stuff was all like, look at the obviously glowing yellow thing. I wonder yeah. if that's a clue. Like, oh, come on. Um, and the point and click adventure, like you said, it kind of feels like a relic of the past. I don't know if Detective Noir is the best arena to give an audience freedom of exploration because you want them to find the clues at the right time in yeah, a well open world definitely way. isn't um yeah. there's definitely some like front to back like linear games that do detective fine but you know in those games generally what you're doing is playing a story you're not you know it's less a game and more a you are yeah. experiencing this story uh which is fine like there's nothing nothing against that um but it's not for everyone yeah but i i feel like books and movies where the creator can control the pacing can have you find the clues at in a reasonable pace um show you what they want you to see like i i feel like it just works a lot better in that sort of like venue i agree um but as far as book versus movie like i I don't know if there is a better medium one versus the other. Like you, it, it all comes down to the writing. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and both are both like whether you whether you realize it or not, movies are a written medium. There's a screen. There's at least one screenwriter back there making it happen. Uh, so you know, it all comes down to how good is the writing? Yeah. Um. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode here because I feel like that's a that's a good conclusion point. Like get the writing right and you can make Detective War great. <laughs> um, is there anything you would like to pitch to our listeners as a close? Any new projects you've got on the horizon? Oh boy, howdy do I. Talk about? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, hello listener. Thank you for listening to me talk. Um, <laughs> I know it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so if, if you're curious about the book of Zev, I, look, I'm extremely proud of the series. Uh, the third book came out in August. It's called a shade of gray. Um, I would really recommend you not skip to it. I recommend you actually (laughs) like read through the series if you're interested in it. Um, that said right now I have a Kickstarter, uh, in like, it's not live yet, but it's in trying to get its followers. And I have a dream of hitting 420 followers for reasons. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Whispers of the Dead Saint. It is a tabletop role-playing game um, uh, novel. It's a novel that takes place in the role-playing game world of Morkborg. And 
I think it is fire. I think it's very good. Uh, it is absolutely splatter pulp. Uh, Swords and Sorcery and Grisly Grim Doom. So if you enjoy listening to me and you want to check out more of my work, please go to www.kaijupoet.com. There's a link to the Kickstarter there. And um, check that out. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at kaijupoet.com. Uh, feel free to message me and say what's up. And if you have any questions about any of my books or any of the stuff we talked about, I'm happy to talk about it. Nice. And I will do my level best to include links to all of that in the show notes for for easy access. Once the Kickstarter jumps up, I'll find that link for us and I'll get that posted every every single where that I can. Thank you. Um, if we hit 420 followers, should we go to 421 or should we just stop for you? Definitely keep going. Uh, okay. <laughs> I will I will say there is a uh there's an incentive to this Kickstarter if we hit a certain number, I'm getting a Morkborg tattoo. Sweet. So tattoo uh, bets are always good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone should want to, want to see that happen. <laughs> um, can we get a little bit of flavor for what the Morkborg tattoo would be? It is it is the cover of the novel. Nice. Uh, which the cover of the novel was illustrated by the original artist of the Morkborg uh, core book. So. Uh, it is fire. Very cool. All right, listeners, let's go get John a new tattoo. Woo. <laughs> well, so I guess that just about wraps us up for this episode to everybody listening. Thank you so much for joining us. Please don't forget to like subscribe or uh, investigate the unusual murders surrounding your streaming service of choice. And we will see you next time. I'm William Sterling. This has been another episode of the killer mediums podcast. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue, so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.